Would you pray with me? God, um, worship does not end when the singing ends. Uh, Our worship now continues. As I preach and as the people here listen, God, we want to do so worshipfully. So, Lord, may we exult over your word preached. Just as we exult to sing your word and to confess your word, God, may we now rejoice in your word preached. God, anoint this preaching with your Holy Spirit's power. Thank you for the book of Philippians. It's a gift to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Emmanuel Church. It's my pleasure to be able to bring the word of God to you this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're doing something uh, new here at Emmanuel, something we haven't done before. Typically, whenever we have a sermon series that our pastor Alex is doing, if someone else preaches, they typically just take up the next passage in that series. So Matthew is the book that we're in a series in right now. Alex just preached the first text from our new Matthew series. What we're now doing is I'm going to be doing a concurrent series. So whenever I have the opportunity to preach, we'll be in the book of Philippians. So they're punctuated between Alex's sermons. So whenever I get up here to preach, just forget everything Alex ever preached on and remember back to the previous sermon on Philippians. So let's read in Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I will never forget the first time I saw The Lord of the Rings. I hated it. Uh, I had a friend who, having seen the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, thought it would be a great idea to fast forward through everything but the battle scenes and just show me the battle scenes of this movie. So there I am in the middle of this world with hobbits and elves and dwarves and orcs and trolls thinking, this is really lame. And I don't know why everybody's freaking out about this movie. Oh, The Lord of the Rings, it's so great. Uh, I was not impressed until one day I was upstairs at my house by myself 
And my family randomly had a weekend of like the Stars movie channel package for free. And there's the Fellowship of the Ring coming on in a few minutes. I said, you know what? I'll give it a shot. See what happens. Well, I don't remember anything about watching the movie. I just remember the moment that it ended and the credits started rolling and I thought that was the most wonderful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I love The Lord of the Rings now. One thing in the movie that I didn't like, just wasn't a fan of, I didn't care for the whole Frodo-Sam friendship. Now, if you've never seen the movies, you're probably like, this guy is a dork. Okay, fair. Um, But those of you that have, I didn't care for the whole Frodo-Sam friendship. It seemed really cheesy and kind of uncomfortable, and I thought, if I could just cut that out of the movie, this would be great. Well, now, 20 years later, that's one of my most dear and precious parts of the movie. I love the friendship between Frodo and Sam. Why? Well, because as the years have passed, I've developed those sorts of friendships. Bosom friendships. Best friends. Friends that will encourage you, stand up to you, defend you, rescue you, carry you. Friends who would die for you. Those are the sorts of friendships that I have formed in those 20 years. And so now, when I see Frodo and Sam's friendship played out in The Lord of the Rings, my heart sings because I know that sort of companionship and kinship. Well, that sort of friendship, that level of kinship existed between Paul and the Philippians. And it shows up in our text today in the book of Philippians. But it doesn't just show up in the text. So by talking about their partnership and friendship in the gospel, I'm not just able to preach this text. That actually serves as a great front door into the book of Philippians itself. So understanding the companionship, the the unique level of camaraderie that existed between Paul and the people at Philippi is a great way to just frame the whole book not just preach this text. That's where we'll start today. Now, one note. We're in a Pauline epistle for this series. And that means that specific wording choices in Paul have the tendency to take on a a heightened level of importance. So the use of one conjunction and not another becomes really important when we're reading Paul. The use of a a so that instead of a because or, or a since instead of a but. These sort of things in Paul are very important logical, logical connections, and so it's very important that if you're able, you keep the text in front of you, because we'll be referencing it a lot. And I want you to see those connections in the text that I'm not just making this stuff up. So, let's begin with this text. Point number one, we see that Paul and the Philippians are partners in the gospel. They're partners in the gospel. So Paul in this text just exudes gratitude for this congregation. Look at verses 3 and 4. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all. He's thankful to God for their partnership, and he wants them to know it. Um, And and he makes a point to use this word all, every, every, all. And that comes through in, in the Greek. They all have that sort of pan Uh, word root to them. And you see it over and over again. uh, Pantote, pan, pan. And you see it over and over again. It kind of comes through in this redundancy where he's saying, every one of you, every time I remember you, all of you, 
Always, I'm thankful for you all. Why such thankfulness from Paul? Why such abundant thankfulness? I mean, consider the people in your life that you feel this way about. Every time I even remember you, always, I just thank God every time with all the joy I have in me. Think of the relationships in your life that have that sort of affection. I mean, the first people that my mind kind of comes to are my sons. I have such a tender affection in my heart for them. When I look at them, my heart just wells up in gratitude to God for giving them to me. That's how Paul talks about these Christians in Philippi. They're hundreds of miles away from him. So why? Why such joyful gratitude for these people? Well, he tells us, because, you see that? Why does he thank God for them so much? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These believers in Philippi have participated with Paul in his gospel ministry from the very day he brought the gospel to them. So there were some churches that Paul had never met that he wrote to. Like Romans. He says, I long to come and preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. But he writes this wonderful letter to the Romans, but he's never really met the, the Christians in Rome. Uh, Colossae is the same way. He never met the Christians in Colossae. So the book of Colossians is written to a group of people that Paul had never met. But from the start, Paul had been with these Christians in Philippi. Paul is the one who brought these people the gospel. They had been his first church plant in Europe. So let's, I don't want to go back to Acts and read through all of these events, but hopefully I can give you a few key events and it'll spark your memory a little bit. So the church at Philippi, what's Paul's history with them? Well, Paul is not in Europe. He's in like Turkey. And he, uh, he wants to go into, into this other region, into Thrace and, and into Asia, but the Spirit prevents him from doing so. And then one night he gets a vision of this Macedonian man. So Macedonia, think like north of Greece. This Macedonian man, he, he's saying, help us. Bring the gospel to us. So they go. Uh, the first convert that is ever made in Europe from Paul's ministry is a woman. Does anybody know who that is? The first convert in Europe? You can say it out loud. I heard it. Lydia. Lydia, there we go. Yeah, so Lydia. Lydia is the first convert, and she's one of these people that's at Philippi. Okay, so Lydia, we assume, is part of this church because that's where she was converted, was in Philippi. Then Paul and Silas and, and their crew are working through the marketplace in Philippi, and there's this woman possessed with a demon who's following them and pestering them constantly. And so Paul casts out the demon from this woman. We assume that she's probably among these people in Philippi. Then because of the uproar in the marketplace, because of this event, what happens to Paul and Silas? They're thrown in jail. This is where they're, they're singing in the night when they're in their chains. They're praising God at midnight when they're in the prison. And then they're miraculously delivered. And who do they meet and give the gospel to? The Philippian jailer. So the Philippian jailer was in Philippi. So we assume that he's probably in this congregation. So these are the events that surround the planting of the church at Philippi. So that's in Acts 16. Then fast forward to like the 23rd chapter of Acts. Paul is thrown in prison. And so begins his Roman imprisonment. And from chapter 23 all the way to chapter 28, the end of the book, Paul's in prison. And we assume that it's from this period of imprisonment that he writes back to the church at Philippi. Now, one thing that's brought up multiple times in this letter 
is the fact that the Philippians have sent Paul a gift. So they've sent him probably a financial gift. So they've sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus. We're going to read about him in the letter. And he brings a financial gift, travels a very long way to bring this to Paul. And this wasn't just like a one-off gift from the Philippians. Paul makes it clear that they have supported him from the very beginning of his ministry to them. And in fact, when no one else was supporting him, support from Philippi was consistent. Even though we've seen this is not like a a super wealthy or impressive congregation. Um, Still, Paul can say this about them in chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Paul says to them, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I first brought you the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul's saying that even when no one else supported me, the church at Philippi, they were consistent in sending me support from the time I brought them the gospel. There was just a special bond of affection and loyalty and support between Paul and this congregation in Philippi. Just listen to how tenderly Paul talks about them in our text. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. We should be immediately struck by the personal nature of this epistle. It's unique in this way. This is like a letter you would write to a very best friend. And Paul doesn't usually talk quite like this to his recipients. I mean, if you flip back and forth to a few of the surrounding letters and compare this opening with the opening of like Galatians, it feels very different. Ephesians even, Colossians, it's different. This comes out in how autobiographical Paul is in this book. He refers to himself a lot. Even if he's talking about them, he does so through this lens of, how he feels about them or what he is praying for them or what he wants for them. I actually compared the use of I, me, and my in Philippians versus just those surrounding letters. Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. It's like a 50% increase in Philippians. Even though Philippians is shorter. It's like a 50% increase in Philippians of how often Paul uses words like I, me, my. So just that 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 sort of trend should clue us into the fact that this is extremely personal. If you want a glimpse into what Paul is really like, how does Paul think? How does Paul feel? Philippians gives us a great insight into that. These Christians are particularly dear to Paul. And that's important to notice, again, not just for our text today. This is a great cue for us to notice going into this book. Now, listening to this, being an audience to this depth of kinship and companionship, I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, are there people that we feel this way about? So look at your life. You have these sorts of close-knit partnerships. Now, I don't think the takeaway from this passage is, let's go out there and make a bunch of, a bunch of friends. Because what existed between Paul and the Philippians is not, it's deeper than just friendship. They weren't bound together just by similar interests. Their friendship was not casual. 
They were bound together because Paul brought them the gospel. Paul describes their partnership as a partnership in the gospel. And he recalls that, him bringing them the gospel even in that thanksgiving. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, that's the day I brought the gospel to you. These sorts of gospel partnerships, these sorts of companionships are a gift from Christ to his church. They're a gift that Christ gives to us. And we should not neglect their maintenance among us. So instead of saying, get out there and make a bunch of friends, I'll just say this to you. Look around. Look around. You're surrounded by people who pledge allegiance to your Lord. You're surrounded by people who hate their sin just like you. They battle discouragement just like you. They at times feel hopeless just like you. You're surrounded by people that need wisdom, encouragement, comfort, and help just like you. So brothers, sisters, bind yourself to them. Forge these partnerships. Ask for God's blessing on your friendships with people in this church. If you've been sort of orbiting on the outside of the community within this church, do so no longer. Dive in. The people around you want to know you and need to know you. You're a gift that has things to offer to them, just as they are a gift with things to offer to you. And this isn't just on the basis of like a common interest in college football, right? This isn't just a a casual friendship. Foster partnerships that are based on the gospel. You may share one or many or no interests, and that's fine. But the roots of our relationships should go deep into Christ and his gospel. Casual friendships can help you like temporarily feel less lonely. But they don't help you when you need to die and you need to do so well. Gospel partnerships help you in those times. When you feel forsaken, when you need to fight sin, that's when these sorts of relationships are a help. And we'll see this sort of relationship illustrated later in this book. So in chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, Paul is going to specifically talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus and what these men were like. And so we'll look at that at that point. Point 2, not only are they partners in the gospel, Paul says they're also fellow partakers of grace. Now, I, now we've got partners in the gospel, partakers of grace, Nothing else is alliterated. It just happened like that in the text. So when I go off script there with points three and four, don't, you know, don't, oh boy, I guess, you, I guess you forgot to alliterate those. No, it's just worded that way in the text. So first, partners in the gospel. Second, they're partakers of grace. So Paul tells us, why does he feel so strongly about them? Why does he hold them in his heart so? Also, because they partake in God's grace with him. So he says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, and it's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. Why? For, because, you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So look at the specific language here. God gives grace to Paul in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, And the people at Philippi are partakers with him of that grace. You see? He says, you all, look at the text, you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
Now, Paul's imprisonment is an important sort of contextual note to make here in Philippians because it sort of serves to typify this idea of suffering that's going to come up a few times in this letter. And this idea of defense and confirmation of the gospel is also going to come up later when Paul pushes them to be examples of the gospel in a crooked world. uh, That topic will come up more. Now, what does Paul mean here by partakers of grace? How does the church at Philippi partake with Paul of God's grace? Well, I don't think we should look for any mysterious meaning for the word grace. I mean, just the absolute grace of God. Perhaps in this context, maybe God's strength made available to people in their weakness or in times of hardship like imprisonment. But I think it's evident that this grace that's coming to the people at Philippi, they're able to share in this grace with him because they support him. Yes, this one gift that's sent by way of Epaphroditus, but also just ever since he brought the gospel to them, they've been a continuous support to Paul. And so they share in Paul's grace in his imprisonment and defense of the gospel. Now, how? How do they partake in God's grace in the imprisonment of this guy who's hundreds of miles away? Well, apparently, the grace that God has given to Paul is in some way mediated to the Philippians because of their support of him. So it's interesting, we haven't really left that topic of gospel partnership here, have we? Points one and two are overlapping in a lot of ways. Because they're partners in the gospel, they partake together of God's grace. So any successes that Paul has in the gospel, the Philippians share in those successes, just as Paul rejoices with them for God's grace towards them. So consider this in our church. Consider the grace of God in which we share with Grace Reformed Baptist Church, for instance. The church that initially planted Emmanuel Church years ago. Grace Reformed Baptist Church partakes in God's grace to Emmanuel Church by way of what we're doing here today. God's grace that we experience here this morning We look at Grace Reformed Baptist Church and we say, we hold you in our hearts because we partake together of God's grace for where would we be without you? Just as Paul speaks to the Philippians, I think of Cornerstone Baptist Church here in Winston, on the south side of Winston, a church that we've partnered with in various ways. Uh, Our elders and their elders sort of teamed up and and found a, a, a pastor for their church and A whole contingent from Emmanuel was present at the installation service for that pastor. Why are we there? Why are there members of Emmanuel Church there at Cornerstone rejoicing with them that God has given them the gift of a pastor? Because we're there saying to them, we hold you in our hearts. And we hope that they're looking at us saying, you're partakers with us of God's grace. Whatever God accomplishes here at Cornerstone Baptist Church through the ministry of Scott Daniel, Emmanuel Church, you partake in that grace with us. For where would we be without you? We've recently sent Zach to Prima to Atlanta, to Mount Vernon Baptist Church, in hopes that he will be sent from Mount Vernon to plant a church in the Atlanta area. And we hope that one day Zach to Prima comes and stands right here and looks at us and says, We hold you in our hearts. Where would the Deprimas be without Emmanuel Church? This church that we're planning in Emmanuel, where would it be without you? You are partakers with us together of God's grace. 
These sorts of associations, Emmanuel Church, are important. They're biblical. They're a, a great representation in, t- in modern day of what New Testament Christianity looked like. Why do you think the letters are always ending with greetings and beginning with greetings? Oh, tell, tell these people that I said hello. Uh, tell that brother that I love him and that we're praying for him. Oh, by the way, our brother here, he's struggling for you mightily in his prayers. That sort of language abounds in the epistles. Why? Because these sorts of associations, not just from Christian to Christian, but from church to church, from church to Christian, and from Christian to church, they're crucial. They're natural manifestations of the gospel at work within a community. And we should, we should seek to foster those and we should glorify God for when we find them. When our elders lead us in prayer, this morning when Ben led us in prayer, we pray for other churches in our area. That's not trite. That's not meaningless. It's not filler. In fact, that's something that is often commented on. My wife and I noticed that. Immediately we said, wow, we've never heard a church pray for other churches. And so many of you noticed that when you first came to Emmanuel, like, oh my goodness, it's like we're all on the same team. (laughs) So praying for these like-minded churches around our area, God, please bless their ministry. Why? We're partners in the gospel. We're fellow partakers of, of God's grace together in our work. Let's move on here to the third point. So we've seen partnerships in the gospel. They're fellow partakers of grace with Paul. Now Paul brings up love, discernment, and final blamelessness. It can seem like a weird triplet of ideas. Love, discernment, and final blamelessness. So Paul's affection for them doesn't just terminate on his enjoyment of them or even on their generosity to him. Paul's love for them desires a certain goal. Paul has holy motives for these people. Paul's desire for them, look at the text, is what? For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that, we should pay attention, what's Paul praying for them? My prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, if you're reading this in the English Standard Version, which is what I just read, I don't think the idea is actually as as expressed as clearly as it could be. If you've got like a King James in front of you or a new King James, you might actually see this more clearly. So let me read this to you as it's rendered in the King James. This I pray. Okay, what do you pray? That your love, see if you can spot the difference here that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, obviously, discernment and judgment were translated differently. That's not a huge difference. But there's a huge difference there in the fact that the ESV says, may your love abound more and more, comma, with knowledge and discernment. So when I look at that, I'm tempted to say, okay, there's several things that are abounding here. Love is abounding more and more, and then knowledge is abounding more and more, and discernment is abounding more and more. The King James, which actually more closely reflects the Greek, says that your love may abound more and more, 
in knowledge and discernment. So how many things are abounding here? One. How is that thing abounding? Ah, there we go. So it's not knowledge and wisdom and love are all separately abounding together. It's, no, love is abounding in knowledge and discernment. Your love is becoming more discerning. Your love is more characterized by knowledge. Your love is more governed by wisdom. And the next phrase bears out this reading. Because look, what does it lead to? So that you may approve what is excellent. What's happened there? You're loving the right things. Right? Your love is not just unbounded love that's abounding more and more. Your love is guided by wisdom to approve things, to attach to things that are worthy of love. And therefore, by implication, to avoid things that are not worthy of love. Now this can happen in a multitude of ways that our love could either abound in knowledge and wisdom or how our love can fail to abound in knowledge and wisdom. It can happen theologically. Right? So, Love for God can easily get carried away apart from knowledge. I mean, last week in a quip class, we spoke about Mormonism. Uh, I've had Latter-day Saints look me in the eye and tell me through tears that they know they worship the one true God. They love him. They talked to him this morning, they say. But their love is not bound by wisdom. Their love isn't guided by knowledge of the scriptures. They have zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. So although love abounds in their hearts for God, quote-unquote, that love has not been directed by knowledge. And so that, that even, even the slightest deviation can lead to no man's land. It can also happen personally. So I think of like a parent's love for their child clouding their judgment about that child. Right, parents, your children are sinners. And as much as we love our children, they can be manipulative. And they can try to take advantage of our love for them. So we've got to be careful that in our great affection for them, we don't actually end up doing them harm because our affection is not tempered by discernment and wisdom. We're certainly not doing them any favors by indiscriminately doting on them. We must dwell with our children as with our spouses according to knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that these are the, the situations that Paul has in mind when he writes this. But his desire for them is that their love would grow in wisdom. And our hearts are so deceitful. And so although love is a godly objective and love is a fruit of God's spirit with us, that love must not be naive or feckless, but wise God's people are to be gentle as doves, but that gentleness is tempered by being wise as serpents. It's the sort of loving wisdom that should be the hope of the young and the immature in this church. Our young people should be looking with admiration at the older saints among us saying, one day, one day I won't be so immature. One day I won't be so led about by my emotions, but I'll be wise like that godly saint. May the young and immature saplings among us, our sons and daughters, grow up into mighty oaks with deep roots and branches that provide shade for many. This only happens if we love them with wisdom. 
There are a multitude of ways in, that, in which that principle could sort of play out, but let's return to Paul's argument. So he says, let your love abound in knowledge. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. So he wants their love to abound in knowledge so that they may approve excellent things. The world around us has truly inverted this desire of Paul for the Philippians. What a pointed critique of the world around us to look at it and say they approve what is not excellent. The world approves that which is low and crude. They celebrate those things which are detestable. And you see Paul's point here grandly proven and that the world does all of these things. They approve what is not excellent. They do that in the name of love. It's tolerance and love that often leads the world to approve things which are not excellent. So because their love is not bound by wisdom and knowledge, they approve things that are low and crude and detestable instead of things that are excellent. All too often, what the world calls love is not guided by knowledge. And so we see truth slaughtered on an altar labeled love. May that not be so of us. Young men and young women especially, listen to me. Be wise. Look around at the world. Consider what you see. What is sowed is reaped. So the world reaps the fruits of its labor. Confusion, foolishness, and death abound in the world around you. So young men and women who are at the cusp of entering into that world yourselves, be wise. The wages for worship of creature rather than creator are death. So consider these things, young men and young women. But lest we just rail against the outside world, Without introspection, brother, sister, do we approve that which is excellent? So many ways that this point could be applied. I hesitate to even say this because I know my own guilt here. Are we tempted to enjoy that which is morally questionable, for instance, in our entertainment? For the sake of entertainment, do we lend approval to things which are not excellent, good, pure, lovely, of good report, is their virtue, is their praise. There is entertainment out there that is so constructive. I just mentioned earlier the Lord of the Rings. I think of that as just a pinnacle of constructive entertainment. Why? Because I watch the Lord of the Rings and it spurs me to be better. I have nephews that have just started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. That thrills me. Why? It's just entertainment for them, but it teaches them to be valiant, courageous, teaches them to hate evil and to recognize it when they see it. So God willing, even their entertainment, because it is excellent, will stir up in them godly impulses that might end up saving their lives. Even in Narnia, Aslan, the great lion, tells the children, the very reason you were brought to Narnia is that by knowing me here for a little, you might know me better in your world where I go by another name, 
That should be our hope and entertainment. So may we be aware that we don't give the enemy a foothold by allowing what is low and wicked into our entertainment choices. It's important there that we approve what is excellent. So, finally, all of this is through Christ to the praise of God. So one, they're partners in the gospel. Paul says, you're fellow partakers with me of grace. He speaks to them about love and discernment and that leading to final blamelessness. And all of this is through Christ to the praise of God. And this sort of overlaps with the end of our third point. Notice that Paul is very concerned for how they're going to appear before Christ. He mentions it twice in this text. Look for that phrase, in the day of Christ. He mentions it twice. Once as a comfort to them. So he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. And then a second time as his prayer for them. And so be pure and blameless. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the day of Christ. So Paul wants them to be blameless. He wants them to be innocent. He wants them to be without blemish. To hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, he may be proud of them that he didn't run in vain. And getting to my last point here, that all of this is happening through Christ, Paul has confidence that this is going to happen. This isn't just a vain hope of Paul's that they'll end up blameless. Paul is hopeful for this. Why? Well, he brings this up. I kind of skipped over this phrase. I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Not because of how wonderful the, wonderful the Philippians are, not because of how effectively Paul communicated the gospel to them. He's confident because he knows the work was begun in them by Christ. So therefore, Christ will see it done. Christ will not begin his work in them in vain. Christ is not like the fool in his own parable who begins a tower without counting the cost. The Lord who began the work will finish the work. A quick application here that's been made thousands of times from this text. Christian, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. In spite of your doubt, in spite of your lingering sinful nature, Christ will not allow his sovereign work to shipwreck on your weakness. Not if you're relying on him for safety. Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan, has said this, your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. Your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. Fling yourself into the arms of Christ. Find assurance in the arms of Christ that he will not abandon that which he began. He doesn't take his cues from you. If you're trusting Christ as Lord, you're safe. Safe and secure from all alarms. He who began this good work in you will complete it. Don't be deceived. This isn't because of you. This is because of Christ's work in you. Because it's he who began the work, it will be completed. It's through him that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness and all this is to his glory. So now we should ask the question, wait a minute, who's responsible for my blamelessness? Our love abounds so that we approve what is excellent so that we are blameless in the last day. 
So it looks like my blamelessness is tied to my love abounding in knowledge and discernment and me approving what is excellent. But then it's Christ who began the work and Christ who will complete the work. So who does it? Is it us or is it Christ? How do we split up the responsibilities here in sanctification? Well, I won't answer that question fully because it's going to come up in a text in chapter 2. But we will sort of preview it. Paul says in Philippians 2, My beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like me. Work it out. With fear and trembling, no less. That sounds like it's on me. It's my responsibility. For... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because, here's why you should work it out, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, in the work of sanctification, does Christ do some and we do part? Does Christ do all and we do none? Do we do all and Christ does none? Edwards says, Christ does all. And we do all. You work, Christian, because God is working in you. There's no room for boasting here. Did you do a good work? Praise God that he worked in you to bring it about. Did you see godly desires stirring up in you? Praise God that he worked to bring that about. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that's in Philippians 2. That's just a preview. We'll talk about that more closely because that needs consideration. One more point that I want to make here, and we'll, be, and we'll close here. I want to illustrate this point with the Philippians' experience itself. In Acts 16, listen to the narrative of Paul headed to Philippi. Okay, and again, Paul's point here is that all of this is done through Christ for the praise and glory of God. Not for your praise, not for your glory. This is illustrated in the Philippians themselves. In Acts 16, just listen along. And they, Paul and his company, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Prevent it again. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And in Troas, a vision appears to Paul. It's a Macedonian standing there in this vision saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that Paul had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they go into Macedonia. And what's the chief Roman city in Macedonia? Philippi. So when they go to Macedonia, they go to Philippi. So even in Paul's first arrival in Philippi to bring the gospel to these people, God's intervention is particularly evident. The Spirit prevented him from going to Asia. The Spirit again prevented him from going to Bithynia. And then they received this vision from God of a Macedonian man crying for help. So it's important to know that Paul, when he's being prevented by the Spirit, he doesn't know what's coming. He wants to go to Asia. And God doesn't let him. Paul has no idea that Philippi is waiting for him. 
Paul has no idea of the tenderness and the love and the affection that he's going to feel towards these people as a result of God preventing him from going into Asia. So the very blessings that Paul is receiving from the church at Philippi, the very love and affection and thankfulness and gratitude he feels towards these Christians at Philippi that are taking care of him from hundreds of miles away, even when no one would, those things are a direct result of what looked like a bitter providence in Paul's life. Paul wanted to go to Asia and God prevented him from going. Paul had no idea why God was preventing him from going to Asia. God knew. 